I've chosen to call this presentation Residual Rebellion, following the tract of the other messages in this series, uh, we're unpacking nearly event by event, uh, looking at the purpose of these, that underlie these events and circumstances. The intentions, the things that are being summarized uh, in the book of Revelation, reflecting the summary of God's intentions and man's adherence or departure from these, these patterns, these in original intentions, and frankly, the role of Satan as the deceiver, the one who, whose entire known existence, once he fell, has been dedicated to opposing the things of God. So the question may be well asked, why is he so intent on opposing God? And what happens to someone when that person, angel or demon or human, dedicates his or her existence to proving God wrong? What is the, what is the motivation? What, what drives this? What is the fire? engine that drives this deep-seated hatred of God. The scriptures give a rather succinct explanation. It says this, lest being lifted up in pride we fall into the condemnation of the evil one, pride, pride. Pride will not allow any individual to recognize that there's anyone greater than himself or herself. Pride is an invisible condition attenuating a sentient being. In other words, pride goes hand in hand with choosing, with free will. This is such an insidious condition, so damning, damning in its nature, that the first commandment, the first writing down by way of a prohibition, an absolute prohibition that God issued to Israel in the table of the Ten Commandments was when He said, Thou shalt have or you shall have no other gods before Me. Because any other God before the Lord 
is something we create, whether out of our imagination, motivated by desire for or to be presented by extension or by proxy in the form of a God who is the epitome of everything we lust after or desire to have, or the sum of all of our fears. And ancient renditions of God, of gods, ran the gamut from the gods through whom ideas of gods and representations of God through whom ancient humans lived vicariously, whether in the pursuit of pleasure or in the fear and therefore the, the worship by appeasement of such a deity, which of course is not God, but mere, and the reason that these are all false irrespective of the mythologies that, tend to, that, that exist to prop them up and to validate them, irrespective of that, they were the vain creations of man's soul's ambitions and or fears. That's who gods are. So, gods do not have to be made of wood, stone or metal even precious metal. And gods do not have to have pieces of food or the carcasses of animals laid before them to exist in the lives of people, lives of humans as gods. Ideas precede execution. So whatever your idea of God is, will precede the imagery that depicts that idea. We could go down through human civilization, we could look at every, we could look at a variety of civilizations from ancient Samaria to um, the Mexican Yucatan and the pyramids of uh, the the Mayans or the Aztecs further up in and around Mexico City, Tenochtitlan. And we could see variations, extreme variations on the themes of these gods. What a, a common theme was the desire to appease by the most pathetic of sacrifices, meaning the sacrifices that elicit the greatest pathos or devotion, result of devotion to the gods and that would include even the sacrifice of children. Now, the saving of the soul is not a small matter because it includes the eradication of these idols, visible or invisible. In the modern time, the gods of our souls 
the gods that human souls worship are ideas. In the less sophisticated renditions of these gods common to ancient civilizations, they made attempts to capture and present what these gods, how these gods loomed in their mindsets. It's interesting that ancient cities were built around these gods. In the Greco-Roman world, the commonest or the most common of experiences or, or, or of edifices to be built as both the religious center of a city and the administrative center wherein a king might live or the other rulers of the city might live was the temple and the palace. Um, and that seemed to have had an unbroken repeti repetitive pattern across the various societies of the ancient world, although people from these respective societies never knew each other, never knew of the other's existence. But they all seem to have that commonality. For example, in the city of, of Corinth, the ruins of the temple of Zeus are prominent. Uh, uh, in the city of Didyma, there are two temples, Didyma meaning twins, Apollo and Diana, very imposing marble columns standing proudly today even though they were originally established in antiquity. But, and, and, and next door, ruins of the administrative uh, functions of the city. But down in the city of Palenque in Mexico, in, in uh, the state of Tabasco, actually the state of Chiapas, uh, you have the Mayan temples and next door the palace. So there seemed to have been a common nexus between church and state, where church legitimized the rule of the state. Now that ought to catch your attention, although I don't intend to go down that path. Because two of the most important pieces of identification to any human being regarding the questions of identity and purpose are who or what is the God you worship, so church, and of what state or country are you a citizen? In fact, these two were so thoroughly conflated in the ancient world that in the Greek world, the concept of citizen, the term polis, P-O-L-I-S, polis, from which we get politics, policy, and other, other nouns and, and adjectives that relate to an identification with a certain locus in quo, 
or location in which, conflated those two identities. So if you were of the city of Ephesus, for example, you would be both a worshipper of Diana. Great is Diana of the Ephesians and the temple of Diana would be the prominent building within that city and someone can make the argument that as citizens of Ephesus, we are inextricably connected to Diana of the Ephesians. So your residence within a city was as much defined by that location as it was defined by the god whose temple existed in that city. Now, today, for example, if you think of what it means to be an American, we don't have the god of, we don't have gods with names like Zeus and Apollo and so on. We have gods with names like freedom, liberty, license, rights. We've even made a god out of the constitution, so much so that we think the constitution is actually an extension of the Bible. And in the present drift, showing the decrepit nature of the souls of mankind and the drift away from divine from the divine plumb line many american christians insist on the same rights as citizens being those rights championed and supported in the church and in this period in which we live it is the most common place of occurrences to hear preachers get up and talk about your rights as a citizen and reference the Constitution of the United States as a holy document rather than what it is, a civic document. And whoever promises their civil slash constitutional rights are the current champions. It's not difficult to lead the American church into apostasy. It's not at all. What are we saying? We're saying that the soul, the soul remains firmly captive to these ancient ideas of gods updated to modern reference, references. That's actually what we're looking at. Rights of citizens of a state have now been thoroughly conflated with the purpose of the kingdom of God. So if you're not promising people a better reading of their citizenship rights, then your gospel has no appeal in the present age. And in some instances, 
It's so grotesque as to be unavoidable. I, I read this article the other day about the emphasis placed on securing rights for immigrants that now has overtaken Hispanic uh, evangelicals. The easiest way to build a church in the Hispanic community is to have a gospel that involves better rights for immigrants. And in fact, all that that is, like in the non-Hispanic church where the primary emphasis is on the economy as an American, having financial freedom and uh, an abundance, which is long-standing. There's even a, a phrase, a derogatory phrase that frames it all, name it and claim it. Um, these things speak eloquently to the conditions of the human soul. And that existing perspective has absolutely nothing to do with being conformed to the standard of Christ. So it's no surprise the affection that there is to going to heaven when you die because none of that has to be challenged going to heaven. And the majority of believers are in that condition. They believe, but they refuse to be disciplined. They are like petulant children, 12-year-olds for the most part. God help you if you try to tell them any different. This thing, this, this, this bus is headed for the cliff. In fact, it's driverless because Christ is not in it and the Holy Spirit provides no leadership to it. It's just every man doing what's right in his own eyes. People will end up that way in the millennium. The majority of people who will end up that way in the millennium end up having a salvation experience but going no further or going very little further and using God, the scriptures and religion as means to accomplishing whatever their souls desire. Now, if that is not cured in the time of the millennium, when Satan is let out of the pit, that condition will remain flourishing and definitive and whoever is yet in that condition will be easily stirred to join in a final rebellion against the things of God, which rebellion would be led by Satan. Now we talked about Satan earlier on, uh, in, even in this series, and we looked at 
why he opposes God. When you have another agenda other than God, whether you're a demon, an angel, or mankind, if you have any other agenda except submitting to Christ, you're going to be in a state of rebellion against God. Only by submitting is your soul saved. And the saving of the soul is the purging of any affection for any God except the one true and living God. And historically, all gods of whatever stripe they may be fall into the twin categories of either what you want for your way of life or what you fear or both. And they're entirely the creations of the souls of men. But today, today, they don't have to be executed in the form of some sculptural rendition. Today there's firmly gods, as in the ancient world, when they set these representations of the gods as they understood them in the temples, in, prominent, in the prominent locations within the temples, which in turn were the prominent places within all ancient cities. The next grouping of people whose souls will be susceptible to being led astray once again, even after Satan has been bound and even after they've lived in the millennium for a thousand years, living daily in the peace of God, in the generosity of His provision, in the righteousness of His ways, in the mystery and wonder of the revealing of the glorious things of God, even then they would long for, they would long for the old ways when the soul was actually in control. That is how powerful the human soul is. That's why it can only be broken by obedience. That's why the first commandment was, no other gods before me, because every other creation is the alter ego of its creator. It's why it's so hard for humans to yield, to bow the knee, to submit. Yes, you can quote, take a knee, as, a, as is a popular thing to do today. That means nothing to God. You know, Christians are fond of taking a knee in the end zone if they make a touchdown or some sporting event. That means nothing to God. Do we bow in our souls to His Lordship? That's the real issue. Because idols and idols of the heart are just as dominant today 
as they've ever been. And my point is when, when the Lord returns, everyone, heaven and earth, everyone who was in heaven, everyone who was on the earth, is going to end up in the millennium. In fact, that is the time when there's the beginning of the descent of all that is in heaven into the earth. When we speak of the great city next and the descent of the great city into the earth, we're really talking about how the remnant of what was in heaven By the way, everything that was ever placed in heaven was destined to migrate to the earth in the appropriate time. So heaven will be emptied out beginning at the beginning of the millennium and culminating at the end of the millennium. One of the things that will will come out of the heavens and finally rest on the earth is the great white throne of divine authority, the symbol, the quintessential symbol of divine authority will ultimately make its way here to seat the one whose lordship will have been finally, fully and uncontrovertibly established when the destruction of everything that opposes him will have been completed. The saving of the soul is the last remaining imperative that would not have been accomplished. The last remaining imperative which if it had not been accomplished in this life, and it can be accomplished in this life, obedience through suffering is the recipe for that. But if it's not accomplished because those whom he received as sons refused to submit to his lordship and his rule, the millennium is precisely the curative event. And at the end of the millennium, whatever remains unaligned to the very nature of Christ, the rule of the rod of iron having been applied, has no further purpose in creation and will be destroyed utterly. Humans will be, fallen angels will be, of every kind, even the spirit of death, And everyone who rejected God, even those who now, who will have slept in the dust of the earth for the entirety of the millennium, they will be raised at the end of the millennium and they will be brought forth to the final judgments along with those who went through the millennium but refused to submit and became part of the army that Satan was able to stir up after he was released from the abyss following 
the term of his imprisonment that lasted a thousand years. I have never been more impressed with both the necessity and the value of the millennium than as I have walked through the study of the book of Revelation, understanding that it's not all over, it's not game over with the return of the Lord. And it's not, it is absolutely not that the Lord is coming back when he comes back to take us to heaven with him. That is simply not the case. That's a fiction. That's an invention. The Lord is coming back to rule over the whole earth. And all mankind will be subject to his rule at that time. The only ones not subject to his rule are those who are already bound over for destruction and those would be those who in this life, who in this life refuse to bow in any fashion to the Lordship of Christ. They'll be held in their place in hell and only resurrected to stand before the throne of God to receive their final judgments. They will be in the company of all those who went through the millennium, given the opportunity to turn and repent and chose not to do so. And those who, though their souls were saved, I mean, though their spirits were saved, were given the opportunity to submit to the rule of Christ and did not. I am not certain that any who received the seed of Christ will end up in that company of those slated for utter destruction. I rather don't think so, but I don't know absolutely if that's the case. I'll continue to look into the matter and if I have further enlightenment then of course I'll present the matter then. But until then, uh, when we look at the next round of things, I will want to consider what happens during the millennium as the ways of heaven, as, as heaven itself, not just the ways of heaven, but as heaven itself begins the process of being emptied out that progression being led by the return of the Lord Himself. So the Lord will lead the host of heaven, out of heaven to take residence upon the earth. What will it look like when heaven and earth are in the same reality? One of the things we're sure, we're sure would be the case, it won't look like earth as we know it now. Why? Because the lesser reality, which is earth, is contained in the greater reality, which is heaven. When heaven and earth come together, 
the dominant and prevailing reality will be heavenly. Earth cannot fit into the domains of heaven, or rather earth will fit in the domains of heaven, but heaven cannot fit in the domains of earth. So all that is earthly will be transformed. Things such as travel, things such as agriculture and the way people are fed and cared for, things such as healthcare, there will be things for the healing of the nations, for example, that are not earthly in their origins and in their developments. I would like to focus more then on specific components of the millennium to try to give flesh to the bones of the concept of living in heaven on earth or earth as defined by the realities of heaven. Everything will be made new with the return of the Lord. We've taken a look already at how new the earth will be in regards to hosting and accommodating Satan and by that hosting and accommodating any rebellion against God, hosting and accommodating a new judiciary in the form of those who rule, the conditions of the subjects of this rule upon the earth and the physical earth itself configured to the realities of heaven. These are the things that I want to unpack when we further consider this, these matters. But until then, I'm Sam Solon and I hope that the eyes of your understanding are being enlightened as we take back these partial and often erroneous presentations of these things, dusting off the cobwebs and dispelling the mysteries and darkness that have accumulated shrouding these things when God meant for them to be seen plainly. I am satisfied that we could not and did not see these things more plainly before because it was not the time. But in this season of the great falling away, which is the key element announcing the sequencing of events that will culminate in the return of the Lord in this season, behold, the eyes of our understanding are being enlightened so that we would not walk in darkness as children of the night. We are sons of the day and of the light. And as the morning star begins to rise in our hearts, things that have been in darkness will be brought into the light of a new day. So, it is my intention that these messages bless you, even as they provide clarity of thought and which in turn unconfuses your actions, that you will seek the Lord while He may be found, that you will submit and obey, 
words that are like curse words in today's vernacular, but that you will submit and obey, submit to and obey the rulership of Christ now, applying the rod of iron and being transformed into that standard. This is the appointed time. This is the day for this level of the salvation of the soul. I commend you to God in the word of His grace that is able to build you up, to establish you amongst the sanctified. We'll continue our discussion. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then. Bye now.